Welcome back to the Plutarch Podcast. I'm Tom Cox from Grammaticus.co. And in this episode, we're going to take a look at Solon, the Athenian lawgiver who, even though he failed to prevent tyranny from taking over Athens, he nonetheless gave the Athenians laws that paved the way for democracy in the century that followed his death. In this biography, Plutarch explores the relationship between wisdom and law, the philosophy of reasonable laws, and the realities which force lawgivers to accommodate their laws to the situation, rather than force the situation to fit their laws. Solon was definitely somebody who we could call a realist. He saw exactly who he was dealing with and made his laws accordingly. There's about five parts to the biography of Solon. Some of these are going to sound typical after a while. We're going to always hear about the birth and rise to power, or the parentage and the rise to power of any character that we're talking about in Plutarch. Then we get the political background in Athens at the time. So the divisions between rich and poor, the people who live in the hills, the people who live on the shore, the people who live on the plains. And then the vast majority of the life is taken up with description of the actual legislation that Solon does. There's three major reforms that he does, and then Plutarch picks up the types of laws that he thinks would be most interesting to his readers, or the types of laws that are most interesting to him, rather than keeping in a biography and just going chronologically. He takes on a philosophical style of writing that's called the aporetic style. And the aporetic style wants to find things that are puzzling, pick them up, look at them around on all sides, and see if there's a way that you can solve them, see if there's a way that you can make them work. See if there's a way that you can make them going from being weird to reasonable, from being bewildering to being rational. And that's actually, I think, the most fun part of the dialogue. Then when he finishes his legislation, so many people bother him that he has to go away. So he travels far and wide, Egypt, Crete, Asia. And when he comes back, the Athenian people don't seem to have been improved too much by his laws. As a matter of fact, those same political divisions we looked at in the beginning are back and the cracks seem bigger and we have this character who's grown up he was a little kid when Solon was a young man but now he's entering politics and his name is Pisistratus or Pisistratus and he slowly builds up power for himself right under Solon's nose and right over Solon's laws so to speak and he becomes a tyrant who rules for the rest of his life and then his sons rule after him. So Solon's life does not immediately end in happiness. But I think Solon is a great example of history not always being written only by the victors. There's a way in which Solon's laws laid a groundwork that several generations after his death, people are looking back to him as the lawgiver and they're looking back to the, the era of tyranny as an Athenian mistake, as something to regret, as something they don't want to go back to. So let's dive right in now that we've done that outline. What is it that makes Solon famous? Well, Solon's living in the 7th century. Greece is coming out of, of a dark age. They're, they're, they've learned to write again. There's commerce going on across the Aegean Sea. And so there's this rising class of men who are known for their wisdom. But this isn't the wisdom that we'll associate later with Socrates. This isn't philosophical wisdom of what is it, what is man, and what is his place in the universe, and what is the universe, and what started it. 
It's not those philosophical questions. It's much more practical. The seven sages of Greece, of which Solon is the most famous, are much more often the guys that solved political problems and were able to lead their polis and their people into stability and ultimately even prosperity. So one of the things that Solon does that gives him this reputation for being wise is that he's able to get the Athenians control over an island not far from their port, which is the island of Salamis. It's a strategically important island for Athens to grow because it's one of the two islands that would allow you to have control over all the trade going on in the Saronic Gulf. And they are fighting with the Megarans, who live just up the coast from them, for it. And Solon even manages to bring in the Spartans as arbitrators, and the Spartans side with the Athenians. It's pretty rare. And this is after a battle has already been fought for the island. You'll see what Solon does to get the island for the Athenians. But the second thing he does that gives him this reputation for wisdom is that he he takes sides in another Greek debate going on elsewhere in the Greek world up by Delphi, which is just north of the Corinthian Gulf. And he fights against a, a city, a port city close to Delphi that would that wants to take over or profane Delphi and he, he allows it to remain a sacred site that is not politically compromised, that is not controlled by any one particular polis and so it remains a pan-Hellenic site that is a site for all of Greece to gather or all of the Greeks to celebrate something or most importantly the Greeks to ask the god Apollo the perplexing questions that they need help with. So that puts his name on the map, both for his fellow Athenians and really for all of Greece proper. Anything that happens in Delphi affects all the Greeks. But then what's going on in Athens at the time? Well, Athens, like I said, is, is emerging out of this dark age where there was no writing. And so we're really talking about the very earliest recorded events that we have in Athens. And there's an early Olympic victor of Athens called Cylon. And Cylon asks the Delphic Oracle what he should do to take over Athens. And basically, he misinterprets what the Oracle means. The Oracle tells him something about a high festival to Zeus. And because he's an Olympic victor, he assumes that means the Olympic festival. So when everybody's off at the Olympics, he grabs the top of the Acropolis, which is the the hill in Athens that is fortified and has their most important temples and is where they store their gold and a lot of their extra armor. So it's sort of like the heart of the city. If you can control that, you can get, you can negotiate with the Athenian people and they're going to give you, or at least give you the time of day, if not give you what you want. So on top of the Acropolis is a temple to Athena, famous, right, probably the most famous temple in the world. The Parthenon, it still stands there. Uh, this is not the version that stands there currently. It was an older version. But there in that temple, Cylon and his followers are in that temple and they claim sanctuary. So they won't come out because they want to be guaranteed that they'll be listened to and they don't want to be killed, obviously, for revolting against the Athenian people because this this revolution didn't work quite as clearly and quickly as he thought it would according to what the god Apollo had told him in Delphi. So what he does is he ties a string around the statue of Athena in the temple and they they come out. Cylon actually makes his escape at night. 
But the other followers of Cylon still want to be treated fairly. So they come out holding on to this string. And as they're walking down the Acropolis, they pass the Temple of the Furies, who could also be called the Avengers. They're the older goddesses whose job is to avenge particularly heinous crimes against the family. And right in front of the Temple of the Furies, the string snaps. And the other Athenians take that as a sign that the gods no longer want to protect these conspirators, and they fall on them and kill them all, even those who end up running to a temple to claim sanctuary again. And so the people of Athens and some of the places in Athens are under a curse. And this is one of the reasons that Plutarch uses to explain why the political division in Athens and Attica is so bad at this time. It's essentially the gods are somewhat involved in pitting Athenian against Athenian because the sins of their fathers, so to speak, have started this this bloodshed against each other, this impious disregard for their fellow citizens. And so he sees the, the political division along two lines. There's a geographical political division where the men who live in the hills, the men who live on the plains, and the men who live in the shore have completely different needs and interests and only want to push forward their own interests and their own needs and are not really willing to discuss with the other two sides. So let's take a look at that, right? And if you're in the hills of Attica, you probably grow grapes or olives. So you're going to have different needs than if you're in the plains of Attica, where you probably raise livestock or grow grain. And if you're on the shore of Attica, you're either going to be a fisherman or a merchant. And so the idea is that those three groups have not found a way to communicate and cooperate in an economy that works for all three of them. The guys on the hills maybe think that the guys in the plains are taking too much water. Or the guys on the shore think that it, you know, the farmers have planted the wrong stuff and we can't export that. That's not going to make us as much money. Why did you grow that? Just eat it yourself. And each of these areas favors a certain type of democracy. The guys in the hill favor democracy. They must want more power. They must want a voice in the government. The guys in the plain favor oligarchy. They probably are okay with things as they are and they want a small group in charge probably of their fellow farmers, people who look just like them. And the guys on the shore want a mixed government. Plutarch doesn't give us too many more details about that, but probably the guys on the shore want something that's dependable and reliable and not going to get in their way. Whereas an oligarchy could easily become corrupt and you could have special interests protected and your interests not protected, depending on which of the few guys are in charge. And then a democracy could also become corrupt in the sense that if it suddenly doesn't like, you know, rules against fish exports that day and you're in the fish business, well, too bad for you, right? So I could see them wanting that mixed constitution for purposes of stability. It would balance the, the other elements out. The other division is really between rich and poor. And it's not like Plutarch is going to side with one or the other. He's not inherently on the side of the poor, which we might expect coming from a modern perspective. He even says that Solon fears the greed of the poor and the arrogance of the rich equally. The greed of the poor is just as dangerous as the arrogance of the rich. It's an intriguing lesson. And yet, both sides like Solon. The rich like him because he's wealthy. Pretty shallow reason to like him. And the poor like him because he's honest. So there the poor start coming off looking a little bit better. 
But as an example, Plutarch will give this statement and he says they both like him. And so they'll hear Plut- they'll hear Solon say something and they'll interpret it in whatever way they want. Solon will say something like equality breeds no war. And the rich will hear that that means fair proportion based on excellence and worth. But the poor hear that even as like absolutely equal, he's going to give the same thing to every person. And that's how we're going to prevent war and conflict. It's important to realize before we get too much further that Solon is going to be given a great deal of power. He's going to essentially be given the power of a monarch. But Plutarch makes it clear early on in this biography that Solon distrusts monarchy. So whatever he wants to be, it's not king. We'll talk about what his title is when we get to his legislation. But he says he doesn't want to be king because he says tyranny might be a beautiful place or the road to tyranny is a beautiful place but it's impossible to return from it. The other thing to make clear right right from the outset is that he's not a revolutionary either. He does not want to change the laws that don't need to be changed. Plutarch says that where it was well before, he applied no remedy. He's only there to change what's sick. And in at the Athens of the 7th century, it seems like a lot is sick. So he is willing to change quite a few things. As a matter of fact, after he gives all the laws, the Athenians ask him, are these the best laws that could be given? And he says, well, they're the best laws that you can receive. Which reminds me of Ben Franklin's response when asked, what have you made? He says, a republic, if they can keep it. This is one of those ideas where the laws are situated to the people and the situation where they are right now. He makes one major mistake before he's given the actual power to legislate, and that's his cancellation of all debts. It's probably not wrong that he cancels all debts, right? We see this in the Hebrew Bible with the Jubilee year. There, it, This is a more common practice in the ancient world than we could than we would think now, but it's similar to the modern idea of declaring bankruptcy. So the problem with Solon canceling the debts is that some people know ahead of time that all debts are going to be canceled. And so they borrow money, buy other stuff with it, and they know that they're never going to have to pay back the money they borrowed, but they'll still get to keep the stuff, mostly the land that they bought with it. So that makes a lot of people angry. Uh, It's amazing that Solon is given the power that he's given because the rich feel like they've been deprived of the money that's owed to them. And the poor are annoyed because he's not revolutionary enough and he hasn't redistributed the land. When we do the life of Lycurgus, we'll see that as a lawgiver, he is far more revolutionary, goes all the way to the root of society and restructures it from the ground up. Solon is going to leave most of the structures in place. If you live in the hills, you're a hill country dweller. If you live in the plains, stay there, right? If you live in the shores, stay there. We just need to make you all work together for the common good of Athens instead of just for your private gain and fighting with each other. So in spite of that flub or mistake or misstep, Solon is still made sole archon. So we know that Athens was ruled by probably about nine archons, maybe maybe fewer in the 7th century, but The archons had the leadership and they distributed the religious leadership and the judicial leadership and the executive leadership amongst themselves. But in the year that they make Solon's sole archon, he's alone. He has power over all the magistracies, that is all the archonships, all the assemblies, all the courts, all the councils. And he can remodel and make laws for the commonwealth as ever as he sees fit for the polis. So the actual legislation is kind of a one, two, three punch, according to Plutarch. 
the first thing he does is he repeals Draco's laws. We've all heard the English word draconian. It sounds like the word dragon because that's really what Draco means. And Draco's laws are still famous to this day, 2,700 years later, for being overly harsh. It's because if you were caught loitering, you were sentenced to death. If you stole an apple, you were sentenced to death. If you committed murder, you were sentenced to death. And if you committed sacrilege, you were sentenced to death. Solon changed all of those except for committing murder. It is ridiculous to have different crimes treated the same way according to their consequences. The consequence of loitering should not be death. Demides, an order a few centuries after Solon, was famous for summing up Draco's laws in one sentence, right? saying that they, the laws were written not in ink, but in blood. So that's the first thing he does. He repeals Draco's laws, takes away the harshest of the laws. The second thing he does is he establishes classes of people according to how much land they have and how much their land produces. This is going to help for setting different responsibilities according to how much you make. The more you make, the more responsibilities you have in government. And we'll see this continue throughout 5th century Greece. If you are wealthy, it is expected that you will use your wealth for the public good. So there are four census classes, and in some of the translations of Plutarch, they're rather difficult to pronounce. But essentially, you, your land either produces 500 bushels, 300 bushels of stuff, 200 bushels of stuff, or everybody else. So the 500 bushel men are called the Pentecostia Medimnoi, and generally the highest ranks in the government are open to them, like the Archons, for example, eponymous Archon. The 300 bushel men are also those who can afford a horse, so they make enough land and can, and their land can support at least one horse, probably more than one. And their rank is called the Hippotoluntes, which implies, hippos is the word for horse in Greek, so that implies that their tax is, their tax status is relative to the fact that they're wealthy enough to own a horse. The 200 bushelmen are called the Zugatai, and that comes from the Greek word zugon, which means yoke. So they probably owned a couple oxen because they had enough land that they needed oxen to plow it and they couldn't just plow it with a donkey or by borrowing a friend's donkey. So they were still fairly wealthy. And then there's everybody else. The Thetes is what they're called. And they're, they're actually granted some rights. It might sound like Solon is just hosing the Thetes and they're put at the bottom of the barrel and they can't do much. But he actually is increasing their political authority and their political prestige in this legal reform. They're granted the right to serve on juries, and they can attend the Athenian assembly. So he's able to increase the power of the courts by wording his laws vaguely and ambiguously, Plutarch says. And so the people's court, the fact that the Thetes serve on court, essentially become a court of appeal. And every citizen has the right to bring any any wrong he feels has been committed, whether it's been against him or somebody else, to court. So that's the second reform. The second reform is getting clarity on who owes what to whom. And not just personally, but politically. What are your obligations in terms of military service? What are your obligations in terms of jury service? What are your obligations in terms of taxes that you owe? The third set of legislative changes that he makes is he sets up three main councils or groups of people that meet. The first is the Areopagus. 
That comes from two Greek words that you might recognize. Pagos means hill, and Ares is the equivalent of the Roman god Mars. And so another term for the Areopagus could be Mars Hill, which in a lot of translations of Acts of the Apostles, you might remember, is the place where Paul preaches to the Athenians. That's not really an accident that Paul is right there. The Areopagus stands over the Forum and under the Acropolis, which is the main fortified hill with a flatter top. And the Areopagus is a great place to address crowds because they are looking out over their whole city from the most public area that they have. They can look down into the Forum and see all of their stoas and temples and places of worship, the statues of their heroes. And so the Areopagus becomes this place where the most important council meets and all former archons join the council of the Areopagus. So the council of the Areopagus is certain rights are reserved to it like trying murder cases. And they tend to be something more like what we would see as the Senate, an advisory body and a body for oversight. Then he makes a body of below that called the Council of 400. And the Greek word for council is a boule. So sometimes this is just called the boule. There's 400 members, 100 from each tribe. And ultimately, their full-time job becomes, at least for the times in which they're serving, becomes setting the legislative agenda for what Athens has to do. So it's complicated. It's a full-time job to run a government. And so the boule is going to help the archons with the day-to-day work that has to be done, especially when legislation has to be called. But with these two councils, which are essentially in service all the time, he calls them, Solon calls them the double anchor so that the polis will be less tossed by the waves. You get that nice ship of state parallel or metaphor. And I, I see the seeds of what the founding fathers will call the bicameral legislature. Right? The area, the council of the Areopagus is even called the upper chamber right? or the upper council. So the final council that he talks about briefly is the assembly of all the Athenian citizens. So it doesn't mean that every single Athenian citizen had to be there and they took 17 hours taking the roll until you know 40,000 names had been called. What it meant was that any citizen who wanted to show up for a particular issue, knowing already what was on the agenda, let's say it was going to war, as soon as 6,000 citizens had gathered together, those were the 6,000 that were going to make the vote, representing all the other citizens. That's the assembly. So that's the third and lowest level. And the thetes, the lowest census class, have full participation in that level. So after he got, does the one, two, three, right? The one was repealing Draco's laws. The two was making the four census classes. And the three was creating those, creating and giving specific responsibilities to the three governing bodies, the Areopagus, the Council of the 400 and the Assembly. He then just picks up and takes on individual laws and looks at them. I, I'll do a really selective list, but the style that he does this in is any law that he thinks is weird or confusing or strange he wants to make more sense of. And if he can, he would like to make it work with his own philosophical system. He would like to accept it as rational. There are some that he rejects. But let's see. One of the coolest ones that I always bring up when I teach Solon's life is that you cannot remain neutral in a civil conflict because if you do, you will be disenfranchised. 
you will no longer be able to vote, serve in the military, or serve on a jury. It's cool to ask yourself why. Why is remaining neutral considered a bad thing? I think it's because if you don't care about the common good, if you can't take a side on an issue that's so important that your citizens are willing to kill each other over it, then you don't deserve to vote, serve in the military, or serve on a jury. You don't actually care about Athens. Neutrality just means, "Ah, I'll wait, see how it turns out for me. He forbids dowries, which I think is an interesting law. A woman is allowed to take no more than three suits of clothing and some household goods to marriage. This is cool because he mentions that you marry for three reasons. Plutarch 100% accepts and approves of this law of Solon's, and he gives his own reasoning behind it. He says, well, Solon is trying to prevent people from marrying for gain, people from marrying to just get a bunch of money, and instead he wants you to marry for philotes, charis, and technosis. And that is love, affection, and the raising of children, which is kind of cool. You wouldn't think that that idea would have been 2,000, 2,700 years old. Another law that he takes on is that, and I found this surprising, when he makes laws about how women are to wear clothing outside of the house, He doesn't set a lower limit on the amount of articles of clothing that they absolutely must wear. He actually sets an upper limit on the on the amount of clothing they're not allowed to wear more than they cannot wear more than three pieces of clothing. And so you realize just how different the cultures are when you think if we were ever to legislate women's clothing, which we're not going to do, we would probably be giving a bare minimum of what has to be worn. We would not have to say oh, well, if you wear four pieces of clothing, well, that's just ostentatious and over the top. But that's really what Solon's legislating against. He's legislating against a flashy culture where the upper class wants to show off the wealth they have in their clothing. And so he's legislating specifically, I guess, the women who, uh, against the women who tend to do this. Kind of surprising to me. Uh, There's another good law where no son is required to support his father in old age if the father did not teach the son a trade. Really cool. The last one I'll bring up is the word sycophant. Last two, actually. He forbids olive oil from being exported. And so another common crop in Athens, the fig, couldn't be exported. Well, the Greek word for fig is sukos. And making olive oil be the only export and the fact that any citizen can bring anybody to court for breaking any law you suddenly have incentivized snooping informants to find people who were selling things other than olive oil bring them to court and win a civil case against them and essentially win a piece of the fine so this encourages the snoopers and informants to point out people specifically i guess who are selling figs and so these people come to be called in greek fig informers which is sukofantoi And that the sycophants are now, that comes into English, not as somebody who will inform against you for gain, but usually somebody who is pretending to be something they're not in order to manipulate you into doing something for them. Sycophants will also call toadies, lackeys. It's the person who seems to be doing something to serve you and because they're all about you but in fact they're totally a fig informer and they're in it for themselves so that that word has changed slightly over the centuries but i just find it fun that the word sycophant goes all the way back to this life of solon and the last 
law that he puts in place that, that I find interesting and worth talking about is that to be a naturalized citizen in Athens, you have to be exiled or voluntarily renounce your citizenship at your past polis, and you must bring your whole family and exercise a trade. So there's three aspects to that, and Plutarch gives the reasoning. He says he's inviting them to a permanent participation in the privileges of government. Athens is famous for being the exact opposite of Sparta. Sparta is a closed society. They think, or they know in their own right minds, that they're awesome and they don't want anybody to participate in it. Athens is an open society, and it's often treated like Athens is an open borders society that has no standards. But I think these four ways of thinking about it are really clear. Right? You can only really put roots in one place, which is exactly why he wants you to be exiled or to voluntarily renounce the citizenship of your past polis. If you have a family, you're not going to put roots down where your family isn't. So bring your family with you. And if you're coming here, you better have something to do. You better contribute to the common good. So, so many people, as I mentioned in the beginning, so many people bother Solon. He's sort of seen as the judge who's still alive. And so they come up to him and they say, what did you mean by this law? Or why did you word it this way? Or this seems unfair. I actually really like this. Everybody's got an opinion and they're all sharing them with Solon. So he leaves and he goes to Egypt, he goes to Cyprus, and then he goes to Asia Minor. And we really only have time probably for one of those stories but in Egypt, he stays in a Greek colony, learns about Atlantis. In Cyprus, he helps a king redesign his city for better living, and the king ends up naming the city after him out of gratitude. But in Asia Minor, he, he meets this, this growing wealthy kingdom called Lydia, which is the first place in history to mint gold and silver coins. So we have this phrase, Croesus is the king of Lydia. He invites him. And we still have a phrase in English, though it's maybe a little less common nowadays to be as rich as Croesus. And so you're associating Lydia with this land of wealth and status and gold and power. As a matter of fact, one of Croesus's mythological forefathers is Midas, the king who had the golden touch. He was from the area of Lydia in Asia Minor. So Asia Minor is always going to be associated in the ancient world with wealth and gold and silver and all of the shiny things. So when Solon gets there, actually, everything is so ornate and everyone is so decorated that he can't even figure out who the king is. He, everybody seems dressed like a king. And Croesus is just taking an immense delight in this, and he wants to show Solon all of his treasures. He's showing off his whole kingdom to Solon, particularly his wealth, and he keeps asking Solon, do you know anybody happier than me? And Solon responds, yeah, I do, actually. <laughs> surprises Croesus, I'm sure, but he tells the story of Tellus the Athenian, whom no one has heard of, who was an honest man, had good children, lacked nothing necessary during his life, and died defending his country. He says, Tellus the Athenian was a happy man. Croesus is confused and uh, thinks Solon might be a little out of touch, but he says, okay, fine, who would rank second for happiness? And Solon immediately says, Cleobus and Biton. And Croesus is like, who? He's like, well, let me tell you. They were brothers, and they loved each other better than any brothers I've ever known. And, and they loved their mom better than any other sons I've ever known. Let me give you an example. Their mom was a priestess of Hera, and she was on her way to a sacrifice at a particular temple of Hera's when her ox injured itself and couldn't go on. 
So she was afraid she was going to be late or she was going to be delayed in getting to this particular sacrifice. But her boys get out of the ox cart, pick up the yoke of the cart, and they drag their mother to the sacrifice on time. The boys participate in the sacrifice. They lay down in the temple of Hera and the mother prays to Hera to give them the very best thing that they could possibly get. And the boys die in their sleep right there at the height of their glory. Solon says, those men were happy. But now Croesus is just angry. And so I think it's worth worth it to, re- to read Plutarch's response to Croesus in full. This same story is also reported in Herodotus. And I really, I don't know who does the story better. I, I teach and like Herodotus's version as well. But here's Solon's response. O king of Lydia, as God has given us Greeks all other blessings in moderation, So our moderation gives us a kind of wisdom which is timid in all likelihood and fit for common people, not one which is kingly and splendid. This wisdom, such as it is, observing that human life is ever subject to all sorts of vicissitudes, forbids us to be puffed up by the good things we have, or to admire a man's happiness while there's still time for it to change. The future, which is advancing upon everyone, is varied and uncertain. And when the God bestows prosperity on a man up to the end, then that man we may consider happy. But to pronounce anyone as happy while he is still living and running the risks of life is like proclaiming an athlete victorious and crowning him while he's still competing for the prize. The verdict is insecure and without authority. That story is awesome. But He leaves Croesus, who has his own lessons to learn and will eventually be conquered by the Persian Empire. You can read the rest of the story in Herodotus. It's great. But he has to return to Athens where things have utterly fallen apart. It looks, when he returns, exactly as it did before he even made the laws, before he was sole archon, before he made all these reforms. Because the three regional areas are at each other's throats again, and it's rich versus poor. And the hill people with the poorest citizens who want democracy, have chosen Pisistratus or Pisistratus as their leader, and he's rising in the ranks as the ultimate pretender. I think the last story is just great, where really, Solon, it comes back to two things at the same time. The first tragedy is performed in Athens, and he's watching Pisistratus be the ultimate pretender. When Solon sees the first tragedy performed by Thespis, which is where we get the word thespian for an actor, Solon is at first eager eager to learn something new, right? Always eager to learn. He attends the play, but he hates it. And he calls Thespis a liar, saying he'll spread this disease of lying all the way into everyday life. And Plutarch doesn't point this out to you, but I really think that the parallel is that that's exactly what Pisistratus is doing with the Athenian people already. He wounds himself so that he can convince the Athenians to give him a bodyguard, which they do. He then uses that bodyguard to seize the Acropolis, and we're all the way back at the beginning of Athenian history again. (laughs) History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Pisistratus seizing the Acropolis sounds a lot like Cylon seizing the Acropolis. They're just not dumb enough this time to tie a string around the statue of Athena and come out hoping that that will protect them. So Solon's life ends when he sees the first tragedy, and it ends tragically. Tragically in the sense... In the Greek sense, not just sadly, but in the Greek sense where almost everything that Solon did was good and guided by his own lights. 
But for the Greeks, a tragedy is when exactly that still leads to bad ends, something we could also call the human condition. When no matter what you do or what good you put in, it is tragic when it doesn't work out anyway, when it ends contrary to everything you wanted, which is sadly how Solon dies. That about wraps it for this episode, though, so you can find more information about the podcast at grammaticus.co slash podcast, or just go to plutarch.life. Please leave a review of the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, since that'll help people find it. Thanks for listening, and I hope I've inspired you to open Plutarch's lives and let his lives affect yours. <laughs>